Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. I am Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. My name is Dr. Katie Mishler. I am an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Postdoctoral Fellow in collaboration with the Museum of Literature Ireland as well as the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. Uh, my project is called Mapping Gothic Dublin, and this is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, which is a part of my Research Council project. Uh, today, I am interviewing Dr. Gillian O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien is reader in modern Irish history at Liverpool John Moores University. She is the author of The Darkness Echoing, Exploring Ireland's Places of Famine, Death and Rebellion, 2020, as well as Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago, which was put out by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. She is also the editor with Fanula O'Kane of Georgian Dublin and Portraits of the City, Dublin and the Wider World, and has also published work on the history of Irish convents, Irish republicanism, newspaper and journalism history, and the history of primary education in Ireland. Her BA and MA are from University College Dublin, and her PhD is from the University of Liverpool. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Gillian. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your book, The Darkness Echoing. Uh, what is the premise of the book? Um, well, the book is sort of accidental in that I didn't mean to write it. Um, so it began as a much smaller project uh, where I wanted to visit all the prison museums in Ireland. And there's about 11 of those and a few more if you include anywhere with cells um, because nobody had really done that. and. Um, so while I was doing that, um, I was invited on to uh, the Ryan Tuberty radio show to talk about a different project to do with the famine and said that I was doing this sort of trip around. And about two hours after that had aired, I got a phone call from the producer saying, we've had about 200 messages of people suggesting other places that you might go to. Um, and sort of suddenly I thought, well, actually, maybe there's a book in this and that we you know, could travel, I could travel around Ireland Kind of looking at how we talk about sort of Ireland's dark past, not just in terms of prisons, but you know, emigration and the famine and death, you know, looking at all the cemeteries, not all the cemeteries, obviously, the book would never be finished. Um, 
And everywhere I went, I'd go to somewhere and get talking to people, you know, staying in hotels or B&Bs, and they'd go, you should really just, if you're here, you should really just go up there now. And there's a great little place. So the whole thing just sort of spiraled kind of out of control. Um, and that's really uh, how I ended up writing the book. And I was really glad that I had, um, particularly when COVID hit and I had, you know, been around all 32 counties in the country over the previous two years. So it was, it was really great that I'd kind of, I'd finished it two days before uh, lockdown did my last trips. That's amazing. Can you tell me a little bit more about this trip around Ireland? So um, you mentioned the type of sites you visited, but do you know how many sites you went to? Um, probably over, well, I have a list of over 300 sites. I think I talk about about 200 of them in the book. Um, and that, you know, I had a list of way more that I didn't get to, which, you know, was handy if you're going to write a second book. Um, so that's quite good. But I really wanted to get around, uh, I decided on an all-Ireland approach. Um, so I really wanted to include all uh, 32 counties. Didn't quite manage that because of lockdown. So. Uh, you know, didn't get to Fermanagh, which was on my, the next day, but everything had shut down. Um, and it's a, a huge range. So it was everything from castles to cemeteries to prisons uh, to tiny sort of one-roomed uh, museums, anything that dealt with anything that might be regarded as being miserable in some way. And that's pretty much, if, you, if you're looking for misery, you really will, you know, find it anywhere. <laughs> so how long did this trip take you and who joined you on this trip? Um, I guess it was the better part of two years on the road in between, you know, my lecturing job. Um, and I took kind of anyone who'd come with me. So all sorts of friends were inveigled into trips going, listen, this will be fun. Wouldn't you like to come to a prison museum followed by a cemetery? Uh, and a surprising amount of people were willing to do that. Um, but prime, I took, I decided I wanted to take uh, young people on my trip. So I inveigled several of my nieces and nephews and also the children of a friend of mine uh, to come on a lot of trips because it was really interesting to see A, what caught their attention, B, whether they were ever sort of going, this is all a bit much and see kind of what they Kate, you know, what, what they took out of it. And I also took my English husband on a lot of trips because seeing it through uh, someone else's eyes is always, from a different kind of background, is always interesting. And the kids didn't get a free ride out of it. So every time we went somewhere, as soon as you got into the car, I turned on the recorder and went, right, what was your favorite thing? What did you notice? What did you not like? Um, and they were great. I mean, they, they never stopped sort of saying yes, if I said, I think that was because I bought them food um, or whatever they wanted. But they were really, I didn't, I sort of did it to hang out with them a bit more, but actually they be, ended up being really important uh, parts of the journey. That's excellent. Could you, so this book does deal with essentially dark tourism. Could mm. you talk a little bit about what dark tourism is? Well, dark tourism gets sort of a bad press sometimes. Um, I mean, dark tourism has existed for centuries. You know, um, it's basically where people go anywhere to sites that are associated with death or suffering or the macabre. So, you know, someone like Madame Tussaud, who began her career, you know, casting waxworks in the French Revolution of people who've been beheaded. Um, uh, she ultimately ends up setting up like a chamber of horrors in London in the mid 19th century. People, thousands of people used to go to those executions. You know, it was a big day out with the family um, if you had nothing else to do. So this dark tourism and dye museums in the United States 
you know, were full of these sort of chamber of horrors things. Um, and even in Dublin, if you, you know, St. Micken's Church that some of you may be familiar with, where you can, you know, go down into the vault and you see mummified remains. Well, people were going to that in the 19th century, but it wasn't badged as, as dark tourism. From a sort of academic perspective, that really dates to the 1990s, where people started to talk about dark tourism or thanatourism. Um, but there haven't been, and certainly historians haven't really engaged with it. And if you talk to a lot of sites in Ireland, they deny that they're dark tourism, because I think it's had that perception of it being sensationalist. But it isn't, or it doesn't need to be. It's really anything. So if you go to a cemetery as a tourist and not to go to a funeral, well, that is dark tourism. Yeah, that's really interesting because one thing that, and I mentioned this to you before um, the conversation started, is if you would have asked me before reading your book to define dark tourism, I would have thought about something like um, the Jack the Ripper tours, something very kind of lurid, sensationalist, in very bad taste, um, not necessarily the most historically accurate as well. And it's also funny because when I was telling one of my housemates who is Irish that I was talking to you about this book and what the book was about, she actually said to me, well, is, are there dark tourist sites in Ireland? And I said, well, yeah, there's Kilmainham Jail, there's, um, you know, Glasnevin Cemetery, um, there's the bog bodies in the National Museum. And she thought for a minute and then she said, well, isn't that just Irish history? <laughs> you know? So one thing I was wondering about that is, do you think Ireland has um, either a, a peculiar cultural or social fascination with the dark side? Or do you even think that um, Irish history is particularly aligned with trauma and violence more so than maybe other cultures? Um, I don't know if it, that it is, but I think, you know, in terms of the, the dark tourism thing, I think what there are, there are shades of dark tourism and on the very sort of lightest end, there are ones that are just about entertainment and in many cases, exploitation and sensationalism, but it runs a whole sort of range. So at the very darkest end of dark tourism are places like concentration camps, where if people go to those you don't have the big gift shops. There's no, it's, it's primarily about education. And then there is everything in between. So I think Ireland doesn't really have the very lightest. It doesn't have very much that's really just about sensationalism. But it doesn't have the really, well, it doesn't have something like uh, Auschwitz or something like that. Um, and you have that whole range. Whether or not, I mean, I don't, Ireland, I think, you know, I, there's a, Liam Kennedy wrote a book about the Irish being the most oppressed people ever um, and how they regard themselves as mope. Um, and I think there is certainly uh, others could claim this quite easily. But I think in some ways, Irish culture is very happy talking about misery and death. And we very often are a glass half empty people, but with humour. Um, so that talking about miserable things often makes us very happy. You know, if you, know, if you look at something like, you know, RIP.ie, like it's just the most bonkers uh, website that would, that's that popular. Um, and you know, you've got millions of hits to check who's dead in the parish. And there is a certain ease. And I lived in Chicago for a while and I've lived in England. And I know that my ease of going, oh, do you know who's dead? Or, you know, this was a great funeral. Um, 
that gets looked at very askance, used to get looked at very peculiarly when in Chicago and in, in England. And there's a certain thing about sort of say Irish death. I found it very odd when I had to go to my first funeral in England where you essentially had to be invited. I was like, oh, it's very odd. You know, you wouldn't just go because you were a friend of a friend or you knew the child of the person who died. You know, or you, 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 in, in Ireland, I think you go for the living as much as the dead, whereas the funerals I've been to in England, you go if you know the person who's died, not necessarily those who are left behind. And, you know, the, the, I've never been to one with more than about 30 people at it, and I'm used to, you know, well, obviously pre-COVID, you know, that it's all changed with that. Um, so I don't know that we have a particularly miserable past, but I think we're quite happy to talk about it maybe more than a lot of other cultures. Yeah, I, I can actually see this. And uh, as most people may know, my, my surname Mishler is not a traditional Irish name. Um, I am American, but there's no Irish heritage at all. So even from, um, you know, I, I know a lot of friends who would be Irish American, and I think they would have more experience with sort of big funerals, um, kind of wakes that get quite rowdy and these sorts of things. But I do remember when I moved here, um, I had only been here about a month and my housemate told me she had to go to a funeral, which I thought was quite serious. And I thought, oh, oh God, are you okay? And she said, oh yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. I said, well, is there something I can get for you? Do you need me to get you groceries? Can I get you dinner? What can I do for you? And she said, oh no, it's just my, my mom's neighbor's mother died. And I, <laughs> and I just, I said, well you, well, you must have been quite close to her. She said, no, I only met her a few times. And this just absolutely blew my mind. Um, but I do think, I, I like what you're saying about this idea of it being for the living and that sort of thing. And it maybe not being, I think, at least in America and probably in England as well, it's something that um, death is taken quite seriously in a way. And it's, there's not always humor found in it. Um, and one thing I really appreciated about this book is even though it is a book about, as you're saying, misery and death, there's a lot of really funny moments in it and there's a lot of humorous moments. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that, finding humor in the macabre. Yeah, I mean, I think the, it, I don't think death isn't taken seriously. I mean, I think it, it, it is taken seriously, um, but I think, you know, there is a certain, you know, humor can be part of that. And, uh, I mean, I've certainly, certainly enjoyed uh, some funerals more than I've enjoyed some weddings. Um, and, you know, that element of, um, a wake followed by a funeral, and particularly if it's not, I mean, obviously there's a big difference if it's a tragic death, um, and that's an entirely different thing. But if it's somebody who's lived a good life and where it is in some ways coming about to celebrate to their life, and to, the idea um, of sitting around um, the night after someone has died and sort of telling stories or humorous stories and bringing, you know, having them essentially almost with you in the room, those things I think are really important. Um, because if, particularly if the person has been ill and died, is to, to remember that it wasn't always that way. Um, and I think there is a long tradition in that. And I think, you know, the Irish traditions of wakes and you know, historically, there are a lot of interesting things about that because through the 19th century, certainly as the Catholic Church became more important, they wanted to remove a lot of the Irish traditions around wakes because they were associated with drink or revelry or men and women meeting because in the early part of the 19th, or well up in through the 19th century, that was one way where men and women could meet 
because there weren't many other social occasions um, for that to happen and the church really objected to that and so there is that and I quite like that nice mix of sort of old pagan beliefs mixed in with you know a more standard kind of religious traditions or the melding of the two and I think the Irish wake tradition is really important and you know we lost that a bit I think during Covid but the idea of people going out on streets and applauding you know uh, coffins as they as they passed and uh, in the middle of of this just as I had was sort of finishing up writing the book my grandmother died uh, one of my grandmothers died and I watched it online because I couldn't be there from England and I remember thinking all of those things that were missing from sort of being able to grieve and being able, it, it wasn't so much her death because she was very elderly, but I, as I sort of saw my father go into the church, you know, surrounded by almost nobody, you know, there were 10, it was at a time where you could have 10 people. That was what you missed. It was the being there for the living. You know, it didn't matter to her whether I was there or not. Um, but I think the Irish, you know, funeral tradition is really important. Yeah, it seems to be much more about than in my experience um, about kind of connection and community and celebration in some ways. Whereas um, I think that in America, it's it's seen as kind of a a very private mourning period in a way, instead of um, finding a way to celebrate people together as well. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you about is, so you've written this book about um, kind of these dark histories and these dark tourist spots. Do you feel like you have a particular interest in studying dark histories or the macabre? Um, I didn't think so. Um, I didn't think it was a peculiar interest. I mean, uh, if anyone has read the book, you'll know that it starts um, with my my grandmother, not the one who died recently, um, but one I lived with when I was in college and uh, she laid herself out in her bed to see what she'd look like as a corpse um, because we'd had a disagreement over the clothes that she had said she wanted to be buried in. Uh, she had identified a particular dress that I thought she'd look awful in as a corpse. Um, and so she got herself dressed up and laid herself out on her bed and wanted me to take a photograph of, it, of her, which I didn't because I didn't have a camera, but I didn't think that that was peculiar. Uh, I was like, oh, God, like, well, get up. Stop being so annoying. Now, it turns out I was right because she got rid of the dress um, and she died, gosh, maybe 10 or 12 years after that and uh, was buried in a much better outfit <laughs> as far as I was concerned. Uh, I really regret, though, that the dress, uh, it's kind of a dress that would be back in fashion now, so I may have been overly hasty um, in getting her to get rid of it. But I thought that that was quite normal and I remember going on, on a trip, uh, she was from Clare uh, and we went back down home for her and I took her around to visit um, a number of her friends and this was, they were all in their 90s at this point and I remember sitting in, in one house uh, talking with her old school friend and they were sitting at the table and I was just listening and they were talking about who was dead in the parish and who died since she'd last been down and who got a good send off and who didn't and all, all of that. And then my grandmother just went, oh, Yera, the whole world is dead. And the, their world kind of was because they were now probably 93 or 94 and all of their own world had sort of died. And I remember thinking that was just a really sort of poignant moment. It was like something from sort of 
a John B. Keane play, except it wasn't. Um, so that all seemed terribly normal to me to go to graveyards. I mean, on our way to Clare, we probably stopped at about six graveyards because, you know, you have to go in and see the second cousin who'd been buried in 1972. Um, so I, I don't know that that was that unusual. But, but I've always loved a graveyard. I'm never happier than, you know, in a graveyard. Yeah, and when I ask you that question, I know it's a bit unfair because I study Gothic literature as well. So I, it's kind of more me asking, why, why are you into this? Well, interestingly, the other day, uh, I walked around my local graveyard in Skerries, and uh, it, the one in, in the town is uh, largely a closed graveyard now, so there are no new burials in it. But there's a tiny uh, little grave from uh, the 18th century that's just a stone flat on the ground, but you can still read it. Um, and uh, it's for a little boy who died when he was five. Um, and there somebody had left like a Christmas teddy and I thought there's something very moving about the fact that this boy uh, who died in the 18th century that somebody went up and, and left a teddy and there were sort of some flowers there as well. I don't know whether it was anyone, any family or anything, but it was just sort of nice to see that, you know, I think if you're in a graveyard, you're never really fully forgotten. No, I think that's a really lovely thought and a really lovely idea. Um, I personally am a huge fan of graveyards as well. Um, I'm from a very rural area in Virginia, and I hope my mom doesn't listen to this podcast because what I'm about to say, she probably already knows about, but I don't want her to. Um, when I was in high school, I mean, there, there's nowhere to go. It's all farmland. So me and my friends used to go to the graveyard. <laughs> to like smoke cigarettes and like listen to music on our <laughs> CD players and stuff. Like that's where we hung out. And I mean, at the time, I think for us, it just, it just seemed like kind of a private place <laughs> where there are not a lot of people. People aren't gonna, you know, come upon you. Like if you're on a park or something, you're not gonna run into your parents, certainly. Um, but I think it's really interesting to think about how we interact with cemeteries, and you do visit quite a number of cemeteries in this book as well. Do you have a favorite cemetery? I'm very fond of Glasnevin Cemetery, um, and I guess that's probably it's the best known one, but um, I'm also very fond of a cemetery um, down near Coeur Claire, uh, where I do have family members uh, buried, but it's an emo most amazing, and I think it's, it's not just peculiar to West Clare, there are there a lot of cemeteries like this, where they've built, um, they're almost like cottages. They're the size of cabins built of stone where you know, a number of people are buried within them, and they very often have grassed over roofs, and it feels like you've walked into a village, a sort of a village of the dead, and it's not, it isn't just there, but they are very prevalent around West Clare and down just outside Skibbereen, uh, there's a great cemetery with an enormous uh, pyramid in it uh, that I went to see recently. Um, so there's all sorts. It's the sort of peculiar ones slightly off the beaten track that, you know, if, I'm a great one for following um, a brown sign. So, you know, if you're driving down a road and you see a brown sign that says cemetery, I'm very likely to, to go down that way and try and see what, you know, what's there and why, why there's all sorts of kind of architecturally really interesting um, graves. And the stories, the local stories about these cemeteries 
are really interesting. And more and more, there are community groups who are recording those stories, which is great. Um, and I know the Heritage Council has been funding some of those. And I think that's really important because while Glasnevin Cemetery is well known, I think there every graveyard has a remarkable story. And from a historian's perspective, it's a great leveler because history books tended to be, tend to be the stories of big men primarily. And, you know, we're going to have to listen to a huge amount about uh, Michael Collins over the next year. And, you know, that's fine. And Arthur Griffith and Eamon de Valera, because we're still, still in the decade of centenaries. Um, but uh, there, there are other stories that you can tell. And one way of, of telling them is going to cemeteries because you've got everybody buried there. You know, it's one thing that's that great leveller. So sort of the next book I'm doing is about cemeteries because it allows you to tell the stories of sort of the poor and the wealthy and everyone in between. Um, and even those who's, uh, who don't have uh, a memorial. And I know I mentioned this to, to you earlier, but very often people talk about don't walk over a grave, you know, that it's disrespectful to walk across a grave. I'm a great fan of walking across a grave because if you're in a cemetery, particularly an old cemetery, people are buried everywhere. And it was the wealthy who could afford to build or you know, to have a memorial to them. So by not walking across them, you're walking across those who couldn't afford to. So I'm an equal opportunities walker. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't see why I should give more respect. I'm not, not disrespecting any of them, but I feel you should walk across anything you want in a cemetery because if you're only respecting the big people with the big tombs, you are walking across those who couldn't afford uh, burials. And I also think it's very important to tell the stories of the Killeen, you know, where uh, people who were deemed sort of unacceptable by the church, whether that was stillborn children or, you know, for, for whatever reason, who were buried outside of um, a standard graveyard, that those stories uh, should be told, because they also tell a story about Irish history. Um, and you can, you know, there's nothing you can't tell outside of a graveyard. So you can tell stories about drowning, about emigration, about sort of, you know, Titanic and Lusitania with the graves. You can tell, you know, stories of, any story of Irish history can be told by using a graveyard as your starting point, which seems odd because it should be an end point, really. No, that, that, <laughs> that is really interesting, this idea that, um, that graveyards are, kind of show these different social histories and gradations of social life as well. Um, one thing I talked to you a little bit earlier is um, the idea of visiting famous graves. Um, and we talked about a few in particular, one being Oscar Wilde's grave at Père Lachaise. Has anyone visited that before? No, okay. Well, don't bother now, no, it's okay, you can now. It used to be somebody had started a tradition where you would put on lipstick and you would kiss the grave to somehow pay homage to Oscar Wilde. And I honestly think he would have loved that. I think he would have loved the ceremony, the flamboyance. Um, but then the, the, the fat and the lipstick or the oil and the lipstick started to degrade the statue. So now they've put up kind of like plexiglass. Somebody cleaned it and now they've put up plexiglass around it. Um, but I've always thought um, I, I enjoy visiting famous graves um, or graves of famous people, but I also kind of find it strange because it's also vis it's, it's a, a presence and an absence. It's a memorial and it's paying homage to something that or someone that you feel connected to, but at the same time, it's there's nothing there. 
Did you encounter any of that on your, uh, yeah. your travels? Yes, and, and in a way, I mean, it depends on, I mean, one of the most famous tombs in Ireland is, is only sort of seen as a tomb. So somewhere like Newgrange, which I find really moving, but actually they don't make a huge deal, like they certainly don't regard that as dark tourism. And yet everybody goes there to walk inside a tomb. And you don't really get much closer to that. But I, anytime I've raised this, um, they, they're sort of like, no, no, it's not. It's all about the sort of the art and the thing. I'm like, but it's a big grave for like, it's, it's an amazing sort of burial site and all across that, that whole area of County Meath. Um, and then you go you know, to Glasnevin Cemetery and you've got sort of uh, Michael Collins' grave, which is never without fresh flowers um, and is a very, quite a small grave. Um, and it's an interesting story about the building of that because uh, it had to be, De Valera sort of said, you, yeah, you, you can have a grave, but it has to be, you know, or a memorial, but it has to be only small and it can't be big and it can't be this, that and the other. And that, that was decades after he died. So there was still the, oh, not having, not having anything big. And De Valera's grave itself is a very modest uh, grave, but it's also been the most vandalized grave um, in, in the cemetery. And then something like uh, Parnell's grave, which is just one big granite stone with his name on it, which came from his estate in, uh, in Wicklow. But that really interesting thing about his grave is that it's on an old cholera pit. So in where if you go to Glasnevin Cemetery and see his grave, there are thousands of people buried in that vicinity because of cholera outbreaks in the city. Um, and they do tell you that on the tour, but for years, no, you know, people didn't, didn't know those, those things. So it's sort of, it sounds wrong to say, but the digging down below those stories, I find really interesting. Or Yeats' grave, where it turns out that he's not actually buried there. Um, or you know, there are bones there that were thought to be his, but turn out not to be. Him. There may be, but they, yeah. they can't be sure. Um, or if you go, I mean, I've done a, a lot of trips, obviously the whole thing began with prison museums and all of the prisons uh, sites, there are burials there um, for, you know, of, of prisoners who died or were executed uh, in the jails and often they are unmarked. And I, that's really interesting that you brought up prisons because um, I think you speak about kind of the social and historical value of cemeteries um, in a really poignant manner. What sort of stories do you think we can gain from visiting sites like prisons, like Kilmainham Jail, for instance? Uh, prisons are kind of a complicated one. Kilmainham Jail is very different to all the other prison museums because of its association with sort of the Irish national story and because it's the site of the 1916 executions. And because for some people, it almost became kind of a site of pilgrimage to go and see where those executions happened. And just the timing of it, it opens in 1796 and the first prisoners were United Irishmen and it closes in 1924. So it runs a political prisoners of all, you know, the different risings that happen. So you can tell a very the sort of political history of Ireland um, through that or, or the, 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 the rebellions of, of Ireland. Uh, that said, they, political prisoners make up a tiny percentage of the prisoners who were in that jail or, or any other jail. Um, and I think in all of the prison museums, there is a focus on the famous prisoners and the political prisoners, which is understandable because that's what gets people, or at least used to get people through the door, particularly when visitors were primarily Irish. You know, if you say Patrick Pierce was held in a jail 
to somebody who's not from Ireland or with an Irish background. Well, they don't know who that is. So that doesn't draw them in. What draws people in from who don't have a particular interest in Irish political history are the stories of children being imprisoned, of uh, executions and of the famine. You know, those are the stories that kind of tend to attract visitors. And there is a, a real difficulty uh, with uh, some of the prison museums. And I say this having worked on some projects, uh, particularly Spike Island and also in Kilmainham Jail, is we can tell the stories of the prisoners. We can tell the stories of the jailers. We can tell the story of the architects and the architecture and the various reform movements. But what we have real difficulty in telling is the story of victims. Um, and that's something that I think they're only really now thinking about. And I think one of the reasons is that a lot of the prison museums that are open are those that opened primarily and ran through the 19th century, and they tend to be the stories. And because that was when Ireland was under direct you know, British control and being governed from London, there is a tendency to see all prisoners good and Irish, all you know, the authorities bad and English. And actually, to the, the truth is that most of the prisoners were guilty of the crimes of which they were, they were convicted, whether that was a minor crime or, which is something that we might not think of as a crime today, but also people were in there for rape and murder and all sorts of heinous crimes. Um, they, in some ways, in our narrative, have got away kind of scot-free because we've got, well, they were imprisoned by the English. So, you know, they can't have been that bad. But I think that there is, that story is being changed. And it is really hard to tell the story of the victims because very often we don't know very much about them. They might be a name in a newspaper. Um, but I think it's really important that that is also done where it can be done. Um, so there are, you know, issues, I think. And it depends, again, one of the things about museums and when I'm working on them is, you know, different, there isn't a sort of set policy because different people own them, run them. You know, it's not that you've got the same standards applying to, to every museum. You don't. I could open a museum tomorrow if I wanted and do largely whatever I wanted yeah. with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this idea of kind of um, curatorial choice is really interesting. And it also ties into another aspect of the book that I really enjoy, which is how you look at uh, mundane, everyday objects that once they're incorporated into a museum, um, become kind of a historical artifact of importance. Um, two examples you give is one, when you visit um, your grandmother, or you visit the Country Life Museum with your grandmother, who was thoroughly unimpressed with it, um, as well as uh, the butt of Kevin Barry's last cigarette. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I I love the ordinary, and I don't think there's we you know it's. I think in museums, and one of the issues I'm not a curator that curators always have is. Um, we tend to, you know, things that are valuable or expensive or very well made uh, tend to get kept and tend to people think, oh, well, we'll donate that to a museum. But sort of the ordinary object, the, ob the everyday object or the, you know, things owned by the poor or the ephemeral things, they tend to get thrown out and we don't keep them. Um, and so you end up telling the story of, you know, the wealthy or the middle class is much easier because you've got stuff. Um, and we don't have, you know, stuff for a lot of, of stories. So I think it's those small things, um, 
the belongings that were important to someone. And Kevin Barry's, uh, I drove to it's in, Kevin Barry's, if you want to see his cigarette butt, is in Carlow <laughs> County Museum. Um, and uh, I think there's something really interesting about that because when Kevin Barry uh, was executed for his sort of role in the War of Independence, the fact that somebody picked up his last cigarette butt you know, they had, there was sort of that awareness that this was a significant event, that this execution was something that would resonate and has gone on to resonate and then was later donated to, um, to Carlow County Museum and they put it on display. It was a sweet afton, in case anyone's uh, interested. Uh, and yeah, I did take my grandmother to uh, the Museum of Country Life. Um, and my grandfather uh, was a saddler and so uh, and they, they were farmers and... Um, so I thought this would be lovely because I think the Museum of Country Life is great. And there's all the, the tools that a saddler would use and there's you know, all the various things. And I thought she'd find this uh, wonderful. And I, how wrong I was. As we walked around, she just was tutting and sighing beside me. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And she's like, who'd keep this stuff? <sighs> I mean, this is all just should be in a bin. I mean, we cleared all that out as soon as we could. Nonsense. Um, and it was just like she was, she'd come from a really poor background uh, with a, and a really poor farm. And this was all a reminder of that. And she could not understand why anybody would want to, to keep this reminder of sort of this poverty. And they had, you know, they had sort of pulled themselves out of it and couldn't understand why anybody would be. So she was never a great supporter of me doing history. She's like, why? <laughs> why would you do this? It was an awful lot of eye rolling uh, that went on. Um, but yeah, so it's really interesting what, you know, for some people, I thought this was great because it gave me an insight into, you know, what my grandfather had done. And for her, it was like, why are you making me come here? <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much, Gillian. This has been really wonderful and it's been a treat to have you talk to us tonight. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> And that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.